going to be in Genesis 2 today, but please open your Bibles first to Matthew uh, chapter 19. Maybe put a, put a ribbon in Genesis 2 and then look with me at Matthew 19 as we get started today. And I'll tell you that song that we sang it was going to help us today uh, to think about how to think about uh, uh, the topic that we're going to get to here in Genesis 2. And we'll see how in a little bit, all right? So Matthew 19, uh, starting in verse 3. Pharisees came to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause. You know, you're just not feeling it anymore. Good enough. That's the question. And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, now this is Jesus. That question mark there ends the passage from Genesis 2 that Jesus quotes. And then Jesus says, With all the authority of God, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now we're all sinners here, so this is not a time of judgment. This is just some stats, okay, of our culture, of our time. Uh, The divorce rate in the United States for first marriages, first marriages, so a young couple, they get to know each other, they fall in love, and they get married, and 50% of them are going to get divorced, Statistically speaking, 50% of them. Now, it gets worse if you go on, okay? Now, in Christ, it gets better as you go on, amen? (laughs) Statistically speaking, in our culture, it gets worse as you go on. Second marriages, 67% of them are likely to end in divorce. And I shouldn't say likely. Statistically speaking, second marriages end 67% of the time, two-thirds of them. Third marriages, 74%. Three-quarters of them will end in divorce. Statistically speaking, right? Uh, Now we know that these numbers also include uh, marriages that do not consist of a male and a female. I tried to look up some of the percentages on that, um, on homosexual marriages, since that was legalized, and uh, it doesn't really distinguish them. There are some stats out there. It seems to be that there's not more or less But, legally speaking, when you look up the percentages of divorce, marriage is defined as marriage as it is in the law of the land, and so all those numbers are put together. Does that make sense? And those numbers were not different before that Supreme Court decision and after the Supreme Court decision. So it's been that way for a while now. Which gives us reason to ask, why the struggle? Why the struggle? Why are so many people going through that and getting divorced and And then also, why the confusion? Why are we having a hard time defining this? Why is it proving so hard for people to stay together? And why can't we seem to understand what marriage even is? And remember that Jesus said, what God has put together, let no one separate. So maybe maybe the problem is that we don't really understand what it is exactly that God has Put together. What is a man? What is masculinity? 
What is a woman? What is femininity? Say that five times fast. What were things like in the garden? What was life like when there was no sin and everything was very good, as defined by God? And I told you the song that we just sang is going to help us. And so you know this isn't in my notes. Our perspective, we are a vapor and he is eternal, right? Who is in charge around here? And far too often, we don't understand what's happening because we're looking at all of life through the lens of our perspective in the midst of the curse. And how do you rightly define anything through that lens? And the answer is you really can't. So that's why we have to go to God. We have to go to his word and look through the lens of scripture to see how things ought to be and be the created and acknowledge, not let him be, but just acknowledge the fact because we can't let him do anything. We're the created, right? We acknowledge the fact that he is the creator and that what he says is good and is right and is best for us. And so as we talk about this today and as we look in the context of Genesis chapter 2, let that be our prayer so that we can rightly divide and handle the word of truth. Let's pray together in that way. Father, we thank you so much that you've brought us together to be here today. God, thank you for working in our hearts, opening our minds to the truth of the gospel, that we could be changed, that we could be given life. Thank you for the Spirit to help illumine us as we think through your word, that to help us to understand it and to rightly apply it. God, please do a work in us as we discuss the content of Genesis chapter 2 today. Give us a gift of faith and of hope. And Lord, as we look at your word, God, help us, enable us to live out what it is that you've called us to do and to be who you have made us to be and to eagerly anticipate the enjoyment that we would have from following and serving pleasing the holy God that you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, hopefully you had your ribbon or your finger there in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read through the whole chapter together and make some um, observations and learn some things as we go through it. And then most of our discussion is going to be towards the latter half of the chapter. But let's go ahead and get off here at verse 1 of Genesis 2. It says, Thus... The heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. Remember Genesis 1 leading up to today is is days 1 through 6 of creation. And so right off the bat, we're looking into day 7 here, and it says it was finished, right? The heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So just bringing back to our mind, as we thought through last week, just the vastness of the created universe, the intricate detail of every facet of that vastness, At the end of six days, all of that, in every detail, was done. And it was very good. And there was no further refining work to do. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Sound repetitive? So God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. When we see repetition like this, it's probably important, right? 
You want to see what's happening here. Uh, God is setting apart, that word made it holy, he's setting apart to himself for his people to be reminded and pointed back to him. Because that's what's good and good for them. Uh, The word rested there, uh, the Hebrew word there is where we get the word Sabbath from. So think of the Sabbath day of rest. That is where that word comes from. It is sabbat in, in Hebrew, okay? And it means, literally, that he ceased. Okay, a, a right translation can be rested, but not rested in the sense of, you know, he'd put a long, hard work week in. He was tuckered out. He needed to get himself a good shower and some clean clothes and a good plate of food to eat and watch the football game because he was out of gas. That is not what that means, Okay. God wasn't tuckered out. He wasn't tired. He wasn't exhausted. There wasn't anything left in the tank. None of that kind of stuff is true. He, he ceased from his work. He was done. Okay? And, and for the Jewish people, the Sabbath day of rest was similarly to be taken by faith. It wasn't a matter of whether you were too tired to keep going or not. It was, this day is set apart and holy to God. I'm going to cease from my labors for this time to point my attention to him. Okay? So... Verse 4 says, these are the generations. Now we're going to see that as we go through the book of Genesis a number of times. And remember that when, when it was written, when it was actually written out, there wasn't a chapter 1, a chapter 2, verse 13, all that kind of stuff, right? That's there and was put there later on to help us to find things quickly. But they didn't use that at the time. They used uh, just literary tools or grammatical context or things like that. Something like the phrase, these are the generations. And so we're going to see that in Genesis. And when we do see it, it's going to be like a chapter break for us to know that something new is coming, a new topic of discussion. And for here, this is, uh, these are the generations, going to be chapters 2, 3, and 4. And there's subsequent events after creation pertaining to the first main events of mankind. So that's what we're heading into, okay? It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the heavens, the earth, and the heavens. Now, verse 5 and on down is a microscope into the details of day 6. Okay, so God didn't create the heavens and the earth in six days and then rest in the seventh and then do more work amongst man with Eve and Adam. Okay, this is a, a flashback, if you will, where it's going to get into the details of what occurred during day 6 says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for, why, why not? For the Lord God had caught, not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. That's God's uh, irrigation sprinkler system there. Verse 7, then the Lord God formed, that's a potter's term, he formed the man of dust, from the ground. Interesting, the word for ground is Adama, and the word in Hebrew for man or mankind, Adam, which is where we get Adam. So those two words, man and the ground, you see the word play there that's happening and why Adam was named Adam. And then, so there's the physical component, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So we know just from this that man is an embodied living creature. There is the material component and the 
immaterial component when God breathed the breath of life in them. There's the physical and the spiritual. And we know that when there's no spirit, that there's no life. So when we think of the word death, it's a separation. The word death means separation. The spirit, the immaterial, has separated from the physical, the material. And so when somebody dies, we know that they have died physically, but the spirit, when to be absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Okay? Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Foreshadowing. Wait till next week for that, okay? But presumably here we see, remember it said that there was no tree, there were no bushes in the garden because man wasn't there yet. And then God made man. And then, so presumably here, Adam is alive. He's up. He's alert. He's seeing what's going on. And the trees and bushes and everything are starting to sprout up all around him because God's then making them. Can you imagine being there at that time? Now, if you're thinking correctly, if you're there at that time, you're not thinking at that point, I am amazing. I just started being alive right here, and I don't know what was happening yesterday, but look at all these trees I'm making pop up out of the ground. That's probably not what Adam was thinking. Adam sees all of these things being created, and therefore he knows, I am a creature. (laughs) And therefore, I am not the center of everything. Which means that if I'm created, and if I'm amongst creation, I've been given a purpose. I answer to someone else. There are boundaries that are made for me. All of these things would be implicitly understood, knowing where he's coming from. Now, verse 10, we're going to talk a little bit about where the Garden of Eden is. And the answer is we don't know. But let's read through this and give attention to the Word of God. It says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Don't try to Google map any of this right now, okay? (laughs) You're not going to find it. But there's gold there. If you find it, there's gold there. And the gold of that land is good. It's not bad gold, it's good gold. There's delium and onyx stone. They're there as well. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And Cush has been taken to be placed in the Middle East. Most recently, it was a name used for uh, the eastern part of Africa, and like now, it would be the Ethiopian peoples. Um, And the name of the third river is the Tigris. We know where that one is, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So some of these places and some of these rivers we know, some of them we don't. Remember that we are not the first readers of the book of Genesis. The Israelites were... Back then. And so they knew what that was talking about. We don't have to know, but they knew. Uh, would you agree, as you think about history, empires come and go, nations come and go, geography and geology changes over time, and it's just the reality of things, right? So we're not going to know everything about all of these individual places. But we do know it was probably somewhere in the Middle East, because it would make sense to think that with what we do know about these places and these rivers. Uh, But we do know this also, that it was beautiful. It was beautiful. God made it perfect. 
And in it there was everything that man could ever need or want. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let's note here that there was work before the curse. Okay? Work is not a result of the curse. It is not after the fall. Hating work is a result of the curse. We're going to see that more next week. Okay, so when you get up tomorrow morning and you're like, Ugh, work. It's not work's fault. It's yours. Okay? Sorry to have to tell you that, but that is the reality of it. Okay? Work isn't bad. People are. (laughs) So we can enjoy work. Verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So just real quick here. We think of the garden and we think, Oh man, Adam, you only had one command. There's just one thing. But if we look at this now, we have, we have four things. One, work and keep the garden. That was something that man was to do. If you look back to Genesis 1.28 that we read last week, uh, man and woman were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Okay, that's going to take some time. We're not going to do that in one day. Uh, third, from, also from 128, to be image bearers. Remember? To be made in the image of God, which means you're going to have dominion and rule over the earth. So that was a responsibility that man had, given by God. And then number four, this is the one don't. There were three do's and one don't. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, if you remember last week when we talked about this structure of Genesis chapter 1, there was the, and God said, and God saw, and God made, then God said. Remember that structure from Genesis chapter 1? We didn't have that in the first part of chapter 2 here, but then it picks up again right here. Then God said, it is not good. This is God's first mention of anything not being good. It's not good that the man should be alone. So his solution, I will make him a helper fit for him. And that word fit means someone who is suitable. A helper who is corresponding to the way that I made Adam. To the way that I made man. Someone who will complement him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Seems like a weird thing to talk about next, right? And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. I'm going to park there for just a second. A couple questions here. Number one, that happened on day six. We're still finding things and naming them. Right? We give them all those fancy Latin names and all that kind of stuff. Well, hold on for a second, okay? Number one, number one, how many of you have a dog? We have a dog. Our dog is a mixture of a boxer and a Labrador retriever, and they call it a boxador. You see that Buick commercial where she names the dog and it has like 15 different breeds in it, and you had to know every one in the right order? We're like that with our pets for some reason. Now, I don't think Adam had to see a Cocker Spaniel and a Boston Terrier 
and a labradoodle <laughs> and all those things go by. Are you following me? There's probably something from the canine family, and Adam could name that. He's probably good to go. So be careful how you think about him naming every animal. This can make sense to be done in the literal 24-hour day. Further, this is the beginning of creation. They have not yet been fruitful and multiplied. So they're all hanging out there for him to be able to handle this. And then third, you and I are not as smart as we could be. Do you realize that? The curse has had its effect. There has been a toll that has been paid by us because of the effects of the curse. Adam was completely perfect in every way. Nothing wrong with him. So I have a strong inclination to believe that Adam was a lot smarter than I am and a lot smarter than any of us are. So like if I had a paper out and I was like, oh, I can't remember, but I already named something that. It's a cool sounding name, but I don't know if I already used that. Adam was not struggling with those things. He probably got after it pretty good. And we know because we are learning from the text that Adam got the job done on day six. Now, more importantly, that's all fun to talk about, but more importantly, why did God say we see it's not good for man to be alone? I need to make a helper that is suitable, that is complementary to him. And then he starts talking about animals. And the answer here is at the rest of verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. God uses Adam to name these animals, and through that process, Adam sees for himself that something's not good. This isn't right. So not only does God see that this is not good, but Adam also is able to feel the not good of the situation. Does that make sense? None of these things are for me. And everything from companionship to even just the physical I can't be fruitful and multiply like these animals can. There's nobody complimentary that's a helper fit for me. So, verse 21 says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And this is still day six. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And then brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last. He, just, he was busy for a while naming all those animals. And he felt the pain of each one of them not being suitable for him. And then this one at last. Is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Think of the husband, the, the groom, standing right here looking down that aisle. And he sees his bride coming. And I don't think he says these words, but Adam says this. At last, this is the one for me. And that joy that he has in his heart as he sees what God has done and given to him. Therefore, and this is what Jesus quoted in Matthew 19. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. By the way, there are none of those yet, right? A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here, marriage 
is established. God defining, making, enacting the marriage covenant on day six. Not after the fall, before it. And we have these components of it. Uh, Leave, to leave the father and the mother. Marriage is uh, the structure of a new home. The new couple has left mother and father and they've been put together. Okay? So a practical implication of this and I often share this in uh, premarital counseling, okay? Just little practical things like, um, you know, the young man, when you get done with a hard day's work and you're exhausted and you're just famished, remember, don't drive to mama's house first. <laughs> Leave mother. Let your wife take care of you. And for the young lady, when you're out driving on the highway and that flat tire happens that first time, remember, don't call daddy first. Okay? Your husband may have no clue how to change a tire. Call him first anyways. And if he says, call your dad, at least he had a part. <laughs> at least he had a part in taking care of you, right? Because God made us to do those things. He made us to take care of each other, to complement each other. And so when you get married, you leave mother and father and you, you grab onto, you cleave onto each other. It's a new home. A new home is established. It says then to hold fast. Marriage is relational. There's a pursuit of relationship to hold fast to one another and no other. And it's for life. It's for life. How do you make it for life? You never stop holding fast. You continually pursue one another. In love. That's what marriage is. You hold fast. And number three, there's a father and a mother. There's a husband and a wife. There's two marriages represented there. And both of those marriages consist of one man and one woman. God defines marriage on day six, one man and one woman. And then finally, we have this idea of one flesh. The two, the man and his wife, becoming one flesh. Remember that God made them to complement one another. And so, as we said, even from Adam's view of the lack of ability that he had to be fruitful and multiply with any of the rest of creation, which is a dust statement to us, but to Adam, he's, this is the first day of his existence, and he's figuring these things out. We know that the one flesh is physical, for sure, and it's uh, sexual in nature, that it's there for procreation, to be fruitful and multiply, and also it says that they were naked and unashamed. It is there also for enjoyment. It's for their togetherness. That's a part of it. But it's not just physical. There's all of the relational components of their complementarity, their, their togetherness as man and wife. Uh, In every facet, men and women were created in a way so that they're able to complement one another. And this is called, the fancy name given to it is, uh, this view is complementarianism. That's one of the big words of the day, okay? Complementarianism. But hopefully that wasn't too hard to chew because I've said compliment about seven times already, right? Complementary. 
Man and woman complement one another. Complementarianism. Okay? Why the fancy word? Well, the opposing view of gender roles is called egalitarianism. And the, the purpose there is to try to bring in the equality aspect. So you have egalitarianism, which is often also uh, paired together with feminism, and you have complementarianism. Now here's some definitions. First, for complementarianism, according to the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, they teach that man and woman are equal in value and dignity, right? God made man and woman in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. So they're uh, equal in value and dignity, and that man and woman have different roles that complement one another in marriage as part of the created order. And that this was the case prior to the fall. And that part's key. And we'll pick that up in a little bit. Now, egalitarianism, as defined in the dictionary, reads this. Galatians 3. Just look at verse 28 by itself first. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no female, or there is no male and female. For you all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So taken right out there at face value by itself, that just said there's no longer any male or female. And that verse is really the, the main verse that is used by uh, Christians who would want to take the view that, uh, that there is no distinction. That there really isn't complementarity, that it's just, it's gone. Okay? But let's look at the context. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In that context, this is what is meant. Was there a time in history where if you were a Jew, you had kind of an inside edge at getting to know who God is? Was there a time in history like that? Yeah, absolutely. There was. Ephesians talks about the dividing wall being broken down. And now, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Greek, a Jew or a Gentile, we all have the same access, and we all, here it is, bang, there it is. I'm not Jewish, and yet here this is, easily at my hands, and I can get to Christ the same way they can, by faith. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Greek. Slave or free. Slave or free, would there have been a time when you had better access to things that you would need to learn about God if you were free versus if you were a slave? To an extent, the answer is yes. But it doesn't matter now. Every person, every man, woman, and child is made in the image of God, and every one of them, God is going to save whom he wills from any one of those. So you don't have an inside edge to Christ, slave or free. Was there a time, think about the Jewish faith and the commandments 
Think about circumcision and that sign. Think about what it meant to be genealogically, genetically a Jew, right? Was there a time when being a man gave you quicker access than being a woman? And I mean it this way. If your father's a Jew and your mother's not, but she comes into the family, what are you? Jewish. If your dad left Israel and your mother is a Gentile, are you going to be in that same position to be amongst the nation of Israel, Old Testament people of God? There's going to be a disadvantage to you. Does that make sense? But now, it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. Christ died on the cross for sinners, and and he is... He is given to us by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And whether you're a man or you're a woman, you have equal access. You're saved the same way. Doesn't matter. That's what that verse is talking about. Does that make sense? So is this a verse that has something to do with manhood and womanhood in general? Or is this a verse that's talking about the saving grace of Jesus Christ? Okay? So that passage does not negate God's created order. So these views, uh, they're supporting egalitarianism. They're shooting at the wrong target. Uh, The actions that they're even against, think about the things that they would say, oh, you see, that's wrong, that's wrong. Men being chauvinist pigs and being uh, abusive towards their wife, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And to that we would say, amen. Amen. They're shooting at the wrong target. And and those things are nowhere to be found in Genesis chapter 2, before the fall. What they're against, and what we would say that we're against, is the way that those husband and wife or men and women relationships can exist in their misuse, in their abuse of the way that God made things. We are against the abuse of God's created order, amen? We're against that. So we need to make sure to clarify then that the way that we see God giving these roles to men and to women, which remember he called very good, it doesn't mean that complementarians, that doesn't mean that we believe that men are superior to women. It doesn't mean that we believe that men are too important to do menial tasks like vacuuming and and folding the laundry and doing the dishes. I realize if you listen to the recorded version, it's not going to catch my quotes, air quotes, okay? It doesn't mean that women cannot exercise intellect and emotion and a will. That is the essence of personhood. So of course we believe that. They can do that. Uh, That women should just be happy to be barefoot and pregnant, as they say. That a woman cannot contribute to a man's spiritual growth. Remember Aquila and Priscilla? In Acts 19, Apollos was going around preaching. He's doing a great job, but he didn't know Jesus had come yet. And so Aquila and Priscilla take Apollos aside and they disciple him. Husband and wife discipling this man. And Apollos learned of Christ. And he grew. And he became mightily used by God to pastor churches and to preach the gospel. And it doesn't mean that women can't work. That they can't. Or that they can't contribute to society at large. Think about this now. The Proverbs 31 woman. 
the Proverbs 31 woman who worked and sold and even was doing real estate business, right? She would have been a massive headache to the man who thought that women just belonged in the kitchen. And yet the Bible says that a man who finds a woman like that is blessed. These views, when taken to their extremes, are not biblical attitudes. And when we think about what it means to be a man, is it just that he's tall, dark, and handsome? Is it just that he's stronger physically? (laughs) Is it just that he kills animals and eats? Is it that he's athletic or, or good with tools? You're a man if you can do that. What does it mean to be a woman? Is it just that she likes to style up her hair and get her nails did? Is it just that she's good at cooking or cleaning? That she likes shopping? Is that what it means to be a woman? That she spends more time on Facebook? These are not things that make a woman a woman. None of these ideas about manhood, womanhood, their relationship to one another, none of them find their support from Genesis 2. Or in passages like Colossians 3, 18 and 19, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, that talk about the husband being the head and the wife exercising submission. Those passages don't say those things, though, do they? They say the husband's the head and the wife uh, lovingly, willingly submits to her husband, but they don't say that all the other things the world says you have to be to be a woman, to be a man's man or a girly girl, okay? And think about this, though. The way the curse messes our mind up as we think about men and as we think about women, some of those things that I mentioned could be the exercise of how God made us to compliment one another, couldn't they? And they could be great things. And they could be an outpouring of of a righteous desire to be a man and to be a woman that are in our hearts because we're doing them with a motivation to compliment one another. But because of the curse, we look at those things and we laugh. And we look at how the world sees them and it's funny to us. The idea of being barefoot and pregnant. (laughs) We use that to mock. And yet Paul said that it is good and a woman can be saved through childbearing. Right? Right? It's not, it's not being pregnant that's messed up. It's us and our thinking about life and about humanity that's messed up because we're fallen. And we're not looking at it through the grid of God's word. We're looking at it through the grid of the experiences that we have around us in a lost and dying world. And so that's why this whole relationship between men and women doesn't seem like it's working. That's why. That is why this discussion can get so confusing And why it can be so hard for us to talk about it and hard for us to stomach it. Why is it hard for women to trust men to lead? When it seems that God has made women to be gifted, to appropriately affirm, and to even nurture strength and leadership out of men. Why is that so hard? And the answer is sin. Why does it seem easier for boys to stay and act like little boys and play around, even when they're in their 30s, but want the physical privileges of marriage, whether they're married or not, when it's clear that God made men to pursue a loving and an appropriate and a benevolent responsibility to lead, to provide for, and to protect women? Why does that seem so foreign to us? Sin. 
Why does the idea of trusting God's way as the best way, that a man would step out, even opening himself up to criticism and rejection, and attempt to lovingly lead and take that kind of responsibility in his home, or or that a woman would willingly and lovingly submit to the leadership of her husband? In counseling, so many times I've heard uh, encouraging a man to be a man and to lead in his home in a loving and a benevolent way. One of the main fears is my wife. And and sometimes the same thing, not sometimes, a lot of the times, the same question from the wife. When given this biblical example of, of submission, the, the main struggle and the main concern is, but my husband. Right? And is that crazy to say that? No. Because their husbands are messed up and their wives are messed up. I'm messed up. <laughs> You're messed up. We don't do this perfectly, do we? But why would this idea seem like such a bad idea and require so much faith to exercise it? And the reason is sin. And it might be good to ask ourselves right now, would I want to follow me? Or would I sign up to lead me? And if the answer is not so much, then want to ask yourself why. And where you might need to change and grow. When we look to the world around us to find the answers to our questions about anything, but specifically today, manhood, womanhood, the relationship to one another, we can only respond. If the world is our grid through which we run everything, all we can do is respond and react to this big mess that we see. And sometimes that mess could even be showing itself or calling itself religiously motivated. You know what I'm talking about? The submit woman, the Bible says so. That kind of a mentality. That's worldliness cloaked in religion. That's not what we're about. That's only a poor exchange. Tainted by the fall. It's a misrepresentation of what God truly intended. So since the world won't have the answers, we must look to God, to our Creator Himself, because He alone is unchanging, He alone is all-wise, and He alone truly and entirely and perfectly loves us and knows what is best. And He's asked us to look to Christ for, number one, our salvation. Remember, if we don't have Christ, if we've not been given life, we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. We are still blind. We are still deaf. And it's not going to make sense to us. We also look to Christ as an example. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We talked about the definition of love in our Sunday school hour. Sacrificially giving of myself for the benefit of another. Applied in marriage, a husband sacrificially giving of himself for the benefit of his wife. We look to Christ as our example. And he asked us to look into his word, not the opinions of man. Think about this. When Paul wanted to address the roles of men and women in marriage uh, with the Corinthian church, he went back to the word of God in Genesis and looked back at Adam and Eve. When Peter wanted to address the roles of a husband and wife, he went back to the word of God in Genesis. And he talked about Abraham and Sarah. The word of God is the only sure place that we can go for right thinking and right living. And we've got to give each other grace progressive sanctification. It's not happening right now, but it's coming. 
give each other grace and grow together. Uh, we can also be encouraging one another in this endeavor in the church. Titus 2. Remember, the older, the more spiritually mature teaching and being examples for the younger, the less mature. This is something that we do as an endeavor, as a body of believers, as the church. We are in this fight together. No one is outside of this. We know this. Big picture. When God finished his creation and all the universe was in its right place, and Adam and Eve were together in the garden, God looked at all of his work and he said it was very good. And we need to say with Christ, what God has joined together, knowing what that means, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And when we strive to live the way that he intended, we can be confident that we will be the most satisfied because we're going to be doing what he made us to do. We're going to function the way he built us to function and it'll be our joy. And when we strive to live the way that he intended, he will be most glorified. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for revealing to us who you are and revealing to us who we are, who you made us to be. God, I pray that you'd help us. There is so much information being shot at us from every direction. And we need to sift all of this information through the grid of your word. God, I pray that you give us grace for that. Help us to see things the way that you made them to be, to see things the way you see things. And God, give us grace to respond accordingly, to live in a way that's pleasing to you, uh, to love you as you ought to be loved, and to love each other the way you made us to love each other. I pray that you'd be glorified by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.